Hello, Next Big Idea podcast listeners. It's the tournament on every poker player's calendar, where amateurs and pros compete side by side for jewelry you can't buy in a store. The 2017 World Series of Poker main event, day 1A, is right now. It's July 8th, 2017, and more than a thousand people are packed into the Amazon Ballroom in the Rio Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Forget James Bond and his tux at Monte Carlo. The people here wear t-shirts and sweatshirts and baseball caps, and nearly all of them are men. The players crowd around more than 180 green oval tables. At each one, a dealer in a white shirt and black vest handles the cards. The ballroom is quiet, save for a droning announcer and the soft clink of plastic chips. You can feel the nervous energy in the air. When the 10-day tournament is over, the winner will take home more than $8 million. Poker is a big money sport, but it's hardly exclusive. Anyone can enter the main event, as long as they've got $10,000 to spare. This year, more than 7,000 players come, some of them seasoned professionals, most of them hopeful amateurs. Upstairs in her hotel room, a 33-year-old woman named Maria Konnikova wonders where she fits in. A year ago, Konnikova knew nothing about poker. She'd never really given it a thought. But for the last several months, she's been training hard with one of the world's best players. And now she's ready to try her luck. But lately, luck has been a fickle friend. Two years ago, an autoimmune condition came out of nowhere and covered her body with painful hives. Then her husband lost his job and with it, the family health insurance. Then her grandmother fell, hit her head and died. Konnikova's run of bad luck made her think a lot about control or more to the point, her maddening lack of it. She wondered, how much of our success in life is determined by chance and how much of it by talent and skill? Poker seemed like a perfect place to look for an answer. You can't win at poker if you're not any good, but you can't win without luck either. The question is whether you can bend the odds towards what's under your control. But today, when her cards are dealt and her chips are put in play, when her fellow players in the Amazon ballroom lean forward on the wooden rails around the green felt table, Maria Konnikova's chair is empty. She's still in her room, curled up on the floor, puking her guts out. For now, at least, luck has got the better hand. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, luck versus skill, and what poker can teach us about living through the current moment. 
Maria Konnikova is a best-selling author, podcast host, and contributing writer to The New Yorker. She was born in Moscow and came to the United States when she was four. She got a PhD in psychology at Columbia, working under Walter Michel, who was known for the famous marshmallow experiment that tested children's self-discipline. In her own research, she studied the way people made decisions and how they understood or misunderstood the limits of their control. She became interested in poker when she was reading up on game theory. She figured Texas Hold'em, a variation of poker where two cards are dealt to each player face down and five cards are dealt face up to the group, was a perfect way to understand the balance between the luck of the draw and the power of knowledge, nerves, strategy, and judgment. She shocked her friends and family, including her surviving grandmother, when she decided to go pro, convincing Hall of Fame poker player Eric Seidel to be her mentor. Over the next couple of years, she won more than $300,000 in prize money, and she wrote a fantastic book about her experience, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. The curators of the Next Big Idea Club voted it one of the best books of the summer. I called her at her apartment in Brooklyn. Maria Konnikova, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. So great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Rufus. It's a pleasure. Well, first of all, congratulations on the selection of The Biggest Bluff as one of our two summer books. As you know, it, this is, you know, Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink selecting the two best books of the season, which is, I think, quite an extraordinary distinction. Uh, so congratulations. Thank you. I feel very honored. So, Maria, it, it's July 8th, 2017, and you're at the main event for the World Poker Series and you find yourself on the bathroom floor, vomiting. What what happens next? <laughs> um, I do not wish to relive this memory, Rufus. <laughs> I'm so sorry to bring you back to that moment. That was <laughs> because not only am I on any bathroom floor, I'm on the bathroom floor of the lovely Rio Hotel and Casino. Um, if anyone has been there, you know that it's not one of Vegas's new properties. Um, I don't know when it was last renovated, but decades ago. And this is not somewhere that I would wish anyone ever find themselves. I was playing the main event of the World Series of Poker, and this was day one. So it was a, a really huge deal. This is what I was supposed to be working toward for for my book, this was supposed to be the grand finale. And I'm someone who suffers from migraines. I've gotten them for most of my life. I first started getting them um, around age 10, 11. And I was getting a migraine. And my migraines don't just affect my head, they affect my stomach. And I was trying to ignore it for, for a very long time and finally could not. And the tournament was actually happening. It was going on as I was on the bathroom floor. Um, I think I put it in a very glamorous way, barfing my brains out, um, because that's, in fact, what was happening. So my chips were in play. So what people who don't play poker need to understand is that in tournaments, you can't just get up from the table. It's not a cash game. In a cash game, get up whenever you want and your chips will be there when you come back. In a tournament, your chips keep going in the middle because the game keeps going even if you're not there to play them. So it would take something really extraordinary to let yourself blind out, which is the uh, the term for it, out of a $10,000 buy-in event. And not just any event. This is the event. The World Series of Poker main event is the biggest event in on the poker calendar. 
And so I was just miserable. I was I was feeling so bad for myself. And it was also, though, kind of amusing because I thought, wow, I'm, here I am writing about luck <laughs> and talk about luck, talk about realizing <laughs> that you can plan for everything. And there are so many things that you can do. And I've been working with Eric Seidel. I made it this far. Um, and hello, migraine. I'm not even there to play. <laughs> I'm here in the bathroom. And, and so that's something that in the moment, I definitely was not laughing because I was in a lot of pain. But in retrospect, I think was was quite hilarious. Um, I don't know when I knew that that was going to be the opening scene of the book, but at some point I realized that it was also <laughs> going to be a great opening scene. I did eventually yeah. manage to stop throwing up and make my way back to the table and finish playing for the day. And I made it to day two. So despite the migraine, I made it to the second day of the tournament. But had I had it to do over again, I would not have the migraine. <laughs> well, you've written a book about risk, told through the lens of poker. And the writing of the book itself strikes me as, as something that was a meaningful risk for you, right? I mean, it was a gambit. You took a year out of your life, you distressed your grandmother, <laughs> and you crashed this very male-dominated, insular world of, of poker. So a risky book about risk. Um, this is exactly right. And it ended up being more than a year. So it ended up being a really huge departure for me. And at the beginning, I think it's really important to note that I didn't know anything about poker, zero. And so I also didn't know if I was going to be any good at it. I didn't know at all what was going to happen with this journey. I had no expectations. A lot of people ask me, you know, were you, were you planning to be, you know, were you going to work hard to win something? No, I mean, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to play at any sort of decent level. And I also didn't know if I'd enjoy the game, if it's something that I would come to feel strongly about one way or the other. I did know that I had a really nice thing going at The New Yorker and that I'd been writing articles that people had liked and that if I did this, a lot of people warned me that I shouldn't do it because my name would be out of the limelight. No one, people will forget about you. A lot of writer friends said, what are you doing? And as you said, my, my uh, grandmother was not entirely happy with this choice either. So it was definitely one of the riskiest things I've done in terms of in terms of my career, because I just kind of put everything on hold and decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see if it happens. And the book is a total departure for me. I am not a first person author. I am someone who reports about other people and who writes about other people. I don't write about myself. And this was going to be a memoir and it was going to be the most personal thing that I'd ever done. I was terrified that people wouldn't like my voice, that they wouldn't like hearing me and not journalist me, but actual me, the actual stuff that happens inside my head. So it was scary on every single level. And that's why I knew it was the right thing to do. You get the sense reading the book that you really, I mean, nobody could have guessed, right, that you would end up becoming a top professional poker player. You ended up winning over $300,000 in prizes. I mean, had I told you this, you know, in the early weeks of your embarking on this, you probably would have fallen out of your chair. I mean, you, you had no idea that it was going to have this kind of outcome. Absolutely not. And I couldn't have had any idea. And the first thing, it's funny. So I approached one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, to coach me because 
I don't know anything about poker or I didn't at the time, but I do know something about learning. Um, and I know that one of the best ways to learn is to find a mentor, find someone who's really, really good at the thing you want to learn and let them teach you, follow them, see what they do, just be a fly on the wall. And that's something that I'm good at doing. And so I had approached Eric Seidel and asked him to take me on. And in our initial conversations, he made it very clear that I wasn't supposed to have any expectations. He said, you know, you have a theoretically a good background for this. He liked that I was trained in psychology, that I'd studied decision-making, that I'd studied self-control. He said, these are things that are going to be very, very useful at the poker table. But until you sit down, until you are subjected to the pressure, until you actually have to perform, we don't know if you're going to be able to think in that way, in that environment. We don't know if you're going to be any good at this because it's very difficult to predict. He said, you have some of the building blocks there, sure, but you can't go into it thinking I'm going to be good. So let's talk about how you arrived at this project, because it wasn't so much an interest in poker, right, that got you in as much as it was an interest in the role that luck plays in our lives. And, and you open early in the book, you tell us about the, how challenging the year 2015 was for you and your family. Yes. For me, as you mentioned, it was much more about what poker could teach me about chance and about skill. And the reason that I had started wondering about it was because I had had a really bad year, which started off um, with me just having a really big health scare, some sort of autoimmune condition that to this day has not been diagnosed. I just had blood readings that were off the charts with all sorts of hormone levels and became allergic to everything. And this was difficult enough to deal with on its own, but around the same time, my grandmother died and she didn't die from an illness. She died of just a freak accident. She was living by herself, completely independent, strong, healthy, and slipped in the middle of the night when she was going to the bathroom and hit her head um, and didn't wake up. And so it was very sudden and it made me really just pause all of these things happening at once. My mom lost her job. My husband lost his job. Just all of these dominoes, one after the other, totally unrelated. And it made me realize that we just take so many things for granted that we often just think, oh, you know, I'm working hard. And so of course I'm, you know, I'm doing well. I'm able to survive. I'm able to pay my bills because I work hard. And so I deserve this. I deserve to have all of this stuff. And that's just not true. I mean, hard work is important and hard. You need to work hard, but that ain't enough. <laughs> you, need to, you need to have the skill, but you also need to have chance on your side. You need to be lucky. You know? And that's not something that we think about on a day-to-day -day basis. Unless things start going wrong, that's when you really start thinking about it. So this challenging year you had helped to trigger this exploration. But you also write about how you've had an interest in the role that luck plays in our lives for many years. And you, you write about first feeling, um, battling a sense of a, of a lack of control as a child, right? That you first came to the United States, I think perhaps it was in kindergarten that you had these experiences of not speaking the language and uh, feeling out of place, like you couldn't control what was happening. Then you had this extraordinary success, right? You were the first in your family to go to college in the United States. You went to Harvard. You got a PhD in psychology from Columbia specifically studying the psychology of decision-making 
under conditions of risk and uncertainty, right, which is extraordinary. Then you make it to the top of the writing profession as a regular writer for The New Yorker. And this triggers a desire to, as you write, to disentangle just how much of where I'd ended up had been my own doing as opposed to a twist of fate. I wanted to know how much of my life I could take credit for and how much was just stupid luck, right? So it sounds like this has been like an enduring interest of yours that has culminated in this in this book. Absolutely. I mean, there was a very, there was something that directly precipitated this journey, but it's definitely, I think this book covers themes that are themes of my life, that are things that I've really wondered for a long time. And, and I do think that, you know, the realization that I had less control than I wanted happened very early on for me, probably earlier than for a lot of people, because I was thrust into an environment where I couldn't do anything because, as you say, I'd left the Soviet Union. My parents did. They brought me with them. Um, By the way, luck, right? Insane luck. Something that I had zero to do with. And then they, they come here, they bring me here, and I don't speak English. And so I was so aware from day one, especially because I went into the wrong kindergarten classroom as it ended up, um, which is why I had to start crying. And uh, so I was so aware that our agency is limited. And I didn't want it to be. I wanted to be able to do something about it. And so that is something that's very deeply ingrained, though, in the human mind, our need for control, our need for agency, our need to actually feel like we're in charge of what's happening. And that's both wonderful, but it can also be a liability because we oftentimes think we're a little more in control than we actually are. And we take more credit for our success. And that makes us judgmental. It means we blame people um, who aren't as successful and we say, oh, you must have, you must have not worked as hard. Right. And that's just wrong. It's completely wrong. And, and so all of these different tensions were, were things that I'd been wondering for a very long time. And when I was in grad school, I did study decision-making and I saw the illusion of control in play, these uh, overconfident people thinking they had more agency than they actually did. And I thought, it, it's so funny. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm not, I, I would never fall for the illusion of control because I know, you know, I've known from the age of four <laughs> that I don't have as much right, control right. as I think. And it was just not true. It was absolutely not true because obviously, you know, come 2015, I learned that I was just as prone to the illusion of control as other people. And then when that control is taken away, you say, uh oh. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to write about this, I, I wanted to explore it. And poker actually came up because I started reading about game theory and learned that John von Neumann, the father of game theory, was a poker player. And that not only was he a poker player, but that poker was actually the inspiration for game theory that he thought that being able to understand and to solve this game would give him a window into the human mind, into strategic decision-making on the highest levels, and that it would really deal with a lot of these questions that I had. You write, to him it represented the ineffable balance between skill and chance that governs life. So he, he not only identified it as being a, a, you know, uh, something that would inspire the whole theory of game theory, but it also, but he saw this as as perhaps the game that was most closely matched with the challenge of kind of navigating our lives. Poker 
is a game of incomplete information, exactly the way that life is. So there are knowns and unknowns. There are things that I know, but that only I know. You don't know them. There are things that only you know, and I don't know them. And then we can start guessing at what the other person knows. And of course, there's the information that we both have. And it's this iterative process. It's this game of people. It's a game of probabilities. It's a game of uncertainty where your goal is to make the best decision possible, but you know that it's never going to be necessarily leading you to the outcome that you want because chance is involved. So your goal is to get the probabilities on your side as much as possible, put yourself in a position to win, make the right decision, but the outcome is out of your hands. You don't control the cards. You don't know what's dealt. And that's what, that's, a perfect analog for life where you can do everything right, but chance also has to go your way. And so in life, nothing is 100% certain. There is no decision that you will ever make where you will know the outcome with 100% certainty. But in our desire for certainty, we tend to overestimate our agency. How do we undo that type of thinking? And how can poker help? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Back inside the Rio to our featured table on day one of the 2009 main event. Lon, have I mentioned I am stoked? (laughs) A handful of undergrads at Tufts University are watching clips from the 2009 World Series of Poker. They're part of a doctoral student's research project studying the psychology of secrets. And he's firing like he's already got a made hand. 6,800. He picked up a straight draw, but he doesn't have a club. He doesn't have a pair. But Lex has enormous pep in his step. And if you're Mwens, you have to worry that Lex check-raised on the flop with a club draw and got there. The researcher in charge is Michael Slepian. Today, he's a professor at Columbia Business School. Back at Tufts, he realizes that old poker footage is a perfect archive of secret-keeping. He wants to know, can you tell who has the best hands and who's merely bluffing just by watching? Slepian shows the students three types of footage. One is the TV feed, showing the table and the players' faces and bodies. The second just shows their faces. And the third shows their hands and arms. The students scrutinize the video and see if they can guess the strength of the players' cards. Wins gives up the best hand. Lex shows the bluff once again and takes the pot the only way he could. Bluffing is central to poker. So is being able to recognize a bluff. The player with the best hand doesn't always win. The player who convinces the other players does. Conventional wisdom says the best way to tell if a person is bluffing is to look at their face, follow their eyes, watch for forced smiles or twitches or ticks. We know this from the movies. The best poker players are the ones with the best poker faces. But when Slappian looks at the data, he finds that the poker face is the least reliable metric of all. It's the hands, especially the way they move, that gives the players away. It turns out it's not just that we're not very good at reading faces. 
It's also that faces aren't very good at revealing the truth. I was fascinated to learn that the strongest hand wins only 12% of the time in poker. So clearly the bluff is, is a huge factor. In poker, you don't have to win to win. You actually just have to outskill the other people. You have to be the smarter player. You have to understand how to press your advantage. Von Neumann has this wonderful line, um, which is one of the things that got me into poker. He writes, real life consists of bluffing of little tactics of deception, of figuring out what does this man think I mean to do? And that's what games are about in my theory. That just really fascinated me. And that's what we're talking about here. And that it is real life and it is poker. It's a game of people. It's a game of psychology. Yes, it's a game of math and probabilities. Of course it is. And you have to understand that. Otherwise you're going to make really, really bad decisions and you're not going to be able to win because that has to be in place. But after that, it's a game of one-upmanship in a way, but smart one-upmanship. When we think of the art of the bluff, there, there's first sort of reading the patterns of the way a given player plays, right? And, and, and in parallel, trying not to let your own patterns be uh, easy to pick up or avoid having patterns, as the case might be. But, uh, but then the second is reading the tells or the physical indications that a player is bluffing. I, I mean, going in as a, with a PhD in psychology, did you feel that you had an advantage when it came to reading people? And, and did, that, did that prove to be true? So when it comes to physically reading people, I was actually very pessimistic. And that's because my last book was about con artists. And I knew that people are really, really bad at spotting deception. And that we're really, really bad at being able to tell if someone's lying or not, especially if the liar is good. And so I came into this thinking that I wasn't going to be able to get a lot physically from other people because I figured that tells just wouldn't have much to do with it because there wouldn't be enough there. I was wrong on two fronts. Front one, there actually are more tells than you think because not all poker players are as good at lying as con artists, right? So, so, so some yeah, people are yeah. not actually at, at good, as good as, at what they do. They're uncomfortable. They're amateurs. You know, they're, they're not quite sure what's going on. I was a tell box at the beginning. So if you're lucky enough mm. to, get, to get to sit down with bad players, you'll be able to fix some stuff up. Then the second thing that I didn't realize was that people had actually been analyzing body language for a very long time. And one of the reasons that I didn't think I'd be able to do this is I know that you need a huge sample size, that you can't just decide that, oh, this person, you know, his right eyebrow twitches, he must be bluffing. No, you'll need to observe that thousands of times and then you'll be able to, <laughs> then you'll be able to come to some sort of conclusion. But it turns out there are people who actually study this. And I'd just never been interested in that before because that's not very applicable. But I came across the work of Michael Slepian, who's a psychologist at Columbia University, who studies not deception, but secrets. So interesting. It is, it is, yeah. it is fascinating, people who keep secrets. And he was just breaking his brain trying to figure out how do you study this well? Because it's really hard to, de to design studies in a way that actually will then translate from the lab to the real world. And then he realized he didn't need to that there was a game called poker where people have a secret all the time. What are my cards? It's something that's secret because I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to try to keep it from you and I'm going to try to conceal it. And so he had perfect material and he ended up doing 
all of this work for me where he analyzed all of these videos to try to figure out, can you tell if someone is strong without actually being able to see their cards? And he had a bunch of students look at videos and he just asked them, does this person have a strong hand? And are, the, are his cards strong? And I say his because every single person here was male. Poker is 97% yeah, yeah. male, um, 3% female. So chances are, if you're looking at a poker table, there will not be a female seated there, unfortunately. Uh, I hope to change that, but uh, but that's the, that's the current reality. And so he had three different conditions. One, people just looked at an altered video where they saw someone playing um, the way that it was broadcast on television. And so they could see everything, the face, the body and the poker table. And then he had people just look at faces. And then he had people just look at hands and arms and you couldn't see the rest of the person. And what he found was that in the unaltered video, people were bad. It's exactly what I had learned with con artists, 50-50, not better than chance at being able to tell if someone is strong or not if they're lying or not, if they have a secret or, or not. Um, if they looked at faces, they became worse than chance. The face screwed people up. Everyone thinks that you're supposed to stare people down. That's not true because people are typically really good at controlling their face. And you have to control your face all the time. If your face showed every single emotion you were feeling all the time, we'd be in a world of hurt when it comes to social interactions. Can you imagine if your face actually expressed what you thought about every single person you saw? That would be a nightmare. Oh, hey, how nice to see you. Oh my God, I hate this person. And so what ended up happening was the faces screwed people up because they were looking at the wrong things. They were using biases such as, oh, this person has a wide jaw that looks trustworthy and the slant of their eyebrows looks trustworthy because it ends up that we look at cues like that all the time, totally subconscious. We don't realize we're doing it, but we do it. Um, And so they became worse than chance. And then something really interesting happened when they just looked at the hands and the arms. All of a sudden, they became better than chance at guessing whether someone was strong or not, even if they didn't know anything about poker. And it turns out that there's a lot of information in the hands, in the way that people handle chips, in the way they handle cards, in the way they bet, in their motions. And once I learned that, it it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. First, I mean, our, our hands have a pulse, which shows heart rate, right? They sweat. So there's actually skin conductance. That's something that psychologists use all the time to look at stress. We don't have as much conscious control over those two things. And we're not paying attention to them. I mean, I talk with my hands all the time. I'm not nearly as conscious of what my hands are doing as I am of what my face is doing. And if you're not conscious of something, it means it might be giving off information. So the the sort of psychodrama around tells and bluffing, get a fair amount of attention when people think about poker. But I was fascinated by the ways in which poker ends up being this laboratory through which one can exercise biases and logical fallacies, right? And and that you had to, in this process of becoming an accomplished poker player, just systematically identify and remove these logical fallacies, right? Starting with the simplest, what I guess would be the gambler's fallacy, the, the, the faulty idea that probability has a memory, Right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many hands you've won or lost. 
that in no way affects your, your next hand. It's like the simplest thing, but as, as Kahneman has said, you can be aware of biases and yet, and yet you continue to participate in them, right? It's, it's harder Absolutely, than, than it absolutely. Kahneman, I'm glad you mentioned him because he's actually very pessimistic about our ability to eradicate a lot of these biases because he says, hey, look at me. You know, I've been doing this for decades and I still have these biases. I actually think that poker is the first place that I found that helps you eradicate some of them Hmm. because there's money on the line. You're actually getting immediate feedback, which doesn't happen normally. And that feedback translates to your bottom line. It hurts. And that's one way that really motivates us to learn. So all of these biases that I knew about theoretically and that I thought I wasn't really prone to, all of a sudden I was forced to admit them in myself, which isn't pleasant. I think that's one of the reasons why they're hard to eradicate because it's for a lot of them, it's not a nice thing to actually realize, hey, hi, this is in your head. This is how you actually see the world. You're not an exception and you haven't become better. But now you have to because otherwise you're going to keep losing. And not only do you have to acknowledge it, which is the most important step, but then you need to actually fix it. And if you don't fix it, if the bias keeps happening, you're going to keep losing and you're going to lose all your money and you're not going to be able to play this game anymore. And that is such a powerful motivator. I'd venture to say that not losing all your money is a powerful motivator even beyond the realm of poker. So is not being humiliated, not being outsmarted, and not letting your friends and family down. But all those things are bound to happen at least every now and again. So how do we learn to learn from failure? Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. In order to get good at playing poker, Maria Konnikova had to lose a lot. Poker was humbling. She had to give herself up to the unavoidable force of chance. Uncertainty, the knowledge that we don't have total control over how things turn out, is a familiar feeling for all of us now as we wait out this pandemic, unsure of what comes next. Konnikova says poker can teach us to cope. I love the example of you're sitting down and looking across the table at a guy who's who's jacked with big biceps <laughs> and he's wearing a, a tank top and he's got tattoos all over his his big, his big biceps, and and then perhaps to his right, there's sort of an elderly gentleman um, strumming his chin. And through the course of playing, you realize that you came into the hand with a set of assumptions about the level of aggression that you might or might not see from uh, people that that fit these descriptions, right? 
<laughs> you love bringing me back to my painful <laughs> moments. <laughs> but yes, this was, it's but so, it, yeah. it's so funny. It was, it was such a memorable moment for me because mm. it just hit home that everyone is biased. I loved this moment of realization when I actually realized that being female was a superpower at the poker table as opposed to a liability because I realized that people saw me as female. That was their first bias. And so they would play against me differently. And at first I let them bully me and I, you know, I, I didn't respond well and I lost a lot of money. But then when I started realizing this, I started winning because I could take advantage of it. And I was so proud of myself. And then we come to this moment that you just described in Monte Carlo, my first major international tournament. And it just blew up in my face because I realized it was, this was the opposite of that when I realized that I do the exact same thing about other people. And I was very mad at myself. So when this guy, this tattooed guy sat down at the table, you know, his head was shaved. I mean, I just, I I can't even, I don't want to understate how big his biceps were. I mean, this guy was jacked (laughs) and I just, he sat down and I'm like, aggressive bully. You're someone who's going to try to bully me because I'm a girl. I'm going to get you. I know exactly what you're up to. And so I ended up within 10 minutes of his sitting down, I ended up making a horrible decision because I thought he was bullying me and I lucked out. So this was one of those situations where I made a horrible decision. I we got all our money in before the flop. The flop are the first common cards that come out. So just based on each other's cards or what we guessed each other's cards were, we got all the money in the middle. And I had a hand that was so much worse than his. It wasn't even funny because I'd been bluffing because I thought he was bluffing, but he wasn't bluffing. He had an incredibly strong hand and I, I won. I lucked out. Um, I hit my miracle card and then he was knocked out of the tournament shortly after and left. And someone else at the table just looked at me and said, are you insane? This is one of the most conservative players out out there ever. It turns out that he's a professional player and everyone knows that he's what's called a nit, someone who only ever raises with the best hand and not someone who ever bluffs like that. And I had no idea. It was one of those oops moments. And then the, the little older guy who's, you know, stroking his chin, I made horrible mistakes against him, too, because I thought, you know, oh, you're never going to bluff. You're this really nice older man. He asked me to take a picture for for his grandson um, so that he could send him ba- send it back to him. And he said he was there from Siberia. I mean, all these things. I was like, oh, this this. Oh, this guy. So I ended up making a huge fold to him, folding a really big hand because I was like, he can't be bluffing. He must have me beat. And you should have seen his face when he just gleefully <laughs> turned over the bluff. So, by right. the way, he didn't have to. So when someone wins a hand, they don't have to show what they had. They can just take the money. Right. Um, if, if, if someone else folds, has yes. folded, right. And I yep, folded. Yep. So he, yep. he didn't have to, but he wanted to show me. He wanted me to know that I'd gotten him, which is there's a little level of extra nastiness to that. One of the fascinating themes in the book was your um, wrestling with some stereotypes and biases related to your being one of only 3% of poker players are women. You said, you know, so it was very unusual to have a woman at the table and, and people were doing all kinds of horrible things, you know, referring to you dismissively as, as a little girl and, and many much, much worse comments, right? And you figure out how to eventually play those stereotypes to your advantage, right? Because basically biases are points of weakness for people fundamentally, right? But but there's also this, this incredible journey that you describe about 
having to sort of confront and perhaps change in some ways the ways in which you felt that you personally had been socialized to be more passive as a woman. And you refer to uh, research by Hannah Riley Bowles at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, uh, which shows that women are penalized both by men and by other women when they ask for more money in a negotiation. So actually making choices to present yourself in a more passive way um, is not irrational. Yeah, um, it's not irrational at all. It's actually the most rational thing we can do because the same traits that are seen in a positive light, if you're male, are seen negatively if you're female. And I was very aware of that. Um, I'd written about it. I'd done research on it. I did a New Yorker piece where I followed a woman who'd lost a job offer. She got a tenure track position in a philosophy department in a liberal arts college in upstate New York and had asked, had sent an email asking about some of the terms of the offer, not even asking for more money, just asking about some clarification. And the offer was taken away. The, the college said, well, it ends up you're not a great fit after all. And that's to, I, I can't see that happening to a man. And, and so I was, I was very well aware of this, but I thought that um, I hadn't internalized a lot of these things myself in the sense that I thought that I could be assertive, that I could stand up for myself, that I had a backbone. And I was forced to acknowledge when I started playing poker, when I was put into this hyper male environment um, where people were very aggressive and were out to win because it's poker, I had to realize very quickly that it applied to me. It didn't just apply to other women. And then I had been socialized and that I didn't really have nearly as much of a backbone as I thought I did. I'd let myself be bullied. You know, I would fold because I didn't want conflict. I'd be like, okay, I guess you, I guess you're stronger than I am. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fold my cards and sit here quietly. When I had good cards, when I knew I had the best hand, I wouldn't bet as aggressively as I otherwise would have because I didn't want people to dislike me. I didn't want them to think, oh, that's that bitch who uh, who always raises me. Um, I wanted them to think I was nice. Yeah. It's amazing how personal and emotional the journey is for you. And, and you talk about a, a period of time when you went and worked with a coach to help you understand what was triggering emotional responses. And, and I think you actually kept a chart of like writing down, you know, what kind of comments or moments or whatever had caused what felt like an emotional response that, that might negatively affect your, I mean, you really want to have this sort of dispassionate level of equipoise, understanding what you can and can't control, avoiding grandiosity on the one hand or self-pity on the other. And th that sounded like a very kind of personal journey to figure that out. It was incredibly personal. Um, and yeah, I have an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> that my mental coach, Jared Tundler, made me keep that at first I poo-pooed and I thought, I don't need this. I, I don't need to keep track of it. But actually, yes, you do. And when you write it down, it's very different from thinking you know, because you're actually forced to write and forced to acknowledge and forced to put it in words and to vocalize things that otherwise would go unsaid. And so, yeah, the journey became much more personal than I ever thought it would. I knew I got into poker to understand skill versus chance. So I knew it was going to help me with probabilities. I knew it was going to help me with kind of strategic decision-making. I had no idea that it was going to help me with my own emotional landscape, that it was going to force me to deal with who I am as a human because I didn't know enough about the game. And yet it did. So let's talk about what you think we all can learn from poker that can be 
apply directly to our lives. What comes to mind when you think of some of the pragmatic lessons people can learn from poker? I mean, I think the single most important one is this is something that we've already talked about, but I think it's so important that we need to reiterate. And that's learning to separate process from outcome. Learning that outcome is not actually a proxy for process, that you need to be focused on the things that are actually controllable. It's so easy to never learn that lesson. It's so easy to take credit for good outcomes. And it's so easy to blame something else, to blame the environment for bad outcomes. Poker is such a powerful corrective for that. And that's so important, both in terms of your own life and your own decision quality, but also in terms of how you judge other people. I think it'll make you a kinder and a better human being if you realize that process is not outcome. Poker teaches you intellectual humility in a very real way because you start to realize just how powerful uncertainty is and how much you have to respect it. And it you become so used to calibrating your level of certainty that it it just it does bleed over into life. And yes, I mean, people sometimes think it's weird when I do this, but all of my friends have come to appreciate it because I mean, if we're not in COVID and we actually are going out and seeing people and uh, and doing things, it's actually really nice if someone says, you know, oh, I'm about 70% sure I can make it. That's really helpful. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Instead of right. saying like, "Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be there." Yeah. Right. There's. It's a not always. Re- in my experience, that's not always received well. <laughs> when you say, <laughs> but you're right. But that, but that, but it, but it's much more helpful. I'm glad you brought up COVID because it strikes me that this epidemic is a kind of collective reckoning with our lack of control. Right. We're all, um, you know, as you said, humans hate uncertainty. Right. We're we're very uncomfortable around uncertainty, and we've all been forced to deal with the. Uh, a really uh, um, unprecedented level of uncertainty for many, many months now. No one wants to release a book during a pandemic. It's not optimal. On the other hand, your book is really about meaningfully about how we deal with a lack of control. And in that sense, it feels very timely. Absolutely. Which, I mean, it brings me to the title of the book, The Biggest Bluff, which is the bluff that we have to tell ourselves. It's not actually about bluffing in the poker table. It's about bluffing in life. It's about looking in the face of this uncertainty, looking in the face of all these things we can't control, understanding that and saying, okay, I'm going to take back control all the same. In the face of this, I'm going to bluff myself and tell myself that I have a little more internal locus, right? I have a little more control than I actually do because that's the best thing we can do to keep going, to make the most of our lives, to make the most of our choices, to be, I think, the best version of ourselves. And rather than being a hopeless, nihilistic lesson, it's a very hopeful, positive one. Well, Maria, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all this with us and for sharing this book with the world. I hope your grandmother um, eventually appreciates that this was a great exercise. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so, too. We can't wait to see what what you do next after this chapter. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rufus. Thank you for having me. From Wondery, this is The Next Big Idea. Today's episode is the last in season two, but check back here in a few weeks for a special bonus episode featuring the incomparable Sam Harris. Boy, am I looking forward to that conversation. We do not have an exact date for when the next big idea will return for season three, but you can look forward to it later this year. In the meantime, this is a great opportunity to catch up on all the episodes you may have missed. So much good stuff this season. 
Special thanks today to Maria Konnikova. Her new book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win, is available everywhere books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Hannah Kingsley-Maw. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. And executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.